0: Raise a fist, Lord! I got to raise a
1: harder.
0: A battle working on summer, just to try to earn a dollar.
1: But mm-hmm. well, Lord, I tried to call my baby, I tried to get a date. Sometimes I wonder what I'm gonna do. Lord, there ain't no. Kill
0: for the summertime blue. Oh, well, my mama, papa told my son, You got to make some money. Well, if you want to use a car, I go right next Sunday. Well, Lord, I didn't go to work. I told the boss I was sick. said, What am I gonna do? Oh, there ain't no kill for the summertime blue. I've got to take the weeks, I've got to help up on vacation. I've got to take my problem to the United Nations. I done told my congressman, and he said, Whoa, is boy. I wonder what I'm gonna do Lord, there ain't no cure for the summertime blue (laughs) Summer. <laughs>
2: Welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was Blue Cheer and their classic version of Summertime Blues. And that's because we're featuring tracks from where an American band a journey through the USA hard rock scene 1967 to 1973. And that's because we've got the usual mix of key hit singles, album tracks and rarities on a cherry red box set. And as ever, we've got uh, the compiler of that set, David Wells. Uh, Welcome, as always, David. Hi, Jason. Thanks very much, Yep. So what was the uh, concept behind this? Was this about how the scene evolved from the underground to something uh, broader by the uh, early to mid-70s? Yeah, to be honest, it's kind of an American equivalent of what we've done
3: with three volumes of um, Freak Baby, which is kind of like the uh, early UK heavy metal. So this is the, uh, the American equivalent, just tracing how it... Evolves from 67, going through the underground, as it were, and then coming out um, with a million-selling hit single, number one single by Grand Funk, Grand Funk Railroad, as they were uh, initially
2: called. Um, so, yeah, it's just tracing that development. Um, that's that's the idea of the set. Blue Cheer, uh, San Francisco trio with the very, very heavy version of the uh, Eddie Cochran classic.
3: Yeah, I'm never quite sure listening listen to it, whether they're kind of stumbling along incoherently or whether it's all a bit of a cosmic joke. Um, <laughs> the fact they don't even bother with the, the punchline for, for the verses is, is um, a bit strange, but it, it does give it its own identity. Um, obviously, Sometime Blues has been much covered over the years, but this is... Uh, This is definitely um, a blue cheer um, version of it that doesn't really get duplicated
2: elsewhere. It does seem to be a real moment in time because they did play on and off for quite a number of decades, but this is the moment where they hit that sweet spot, I think.
3: Yeah, I think in some ways this is almost like uh, the equivalent of of punk 10 years later where people were saying, well, what the hell was that? Where's that come from? Because until then, bands were more fluent, almost. They um, give better interviews. I mean, I mentioned in the Sleeve Notes, famously incoherent uh, Blue Cheer <laughs> appearance on American Bandstand, where they're clearly completely out of it. Or, or if they're not out of it, then they're just sort of fabulously inarticulate teenagers or whatever. So, yeah, it is It is something that comes from nowhere, almost. Um, and obviously, uh, um as I've discussed in the sleeve notes, the fact you've got the Jim Marshall's amplifier suddenly coming along and making everything louder and noisier. That's a, an integral part of that 67 kind of explosion of sound in America where you, you get a, like
2: a heavier equivalent of psychedelia, really, uh, which predates slightly what became known as heavy metal. And as always, uh, as you were referring to David, there's extensive sleeve notes, and it's always interesting to hear the roots of the various bands that are on the sets, and uh, the next artist, Fever Tree, is no exception, and the song is Man Who Paints The Pictures, but the group, or certainly members of it, came from a, a folk background. That's right, they were initially um, a Houston band called the
3: Bostwick Vines, uh, they picked up a keyboard player and uh, got a slightly heavier, sort of more hard rock sound yeah, I mean, they debuted with um, San Francisco Girls' Return of the Native, which is not quite as heavy as this track. This uh, Man Who Paints the Pictures was on their first album. Man Who Paints the Pictures, including Stray, who played it at their demo session for Pi in 1968. So again, I think it's easier for, for American bands to make a splash sometimes, or it was at the time in, in this country, because uh, such a small uh, Smaller um, uh, amount of competition, really. You've got, um, you know, Radio One, some John Peel getting behind it. You've got two or three music papers who will cover the American stuff. So I, I think it didn't make much impact in America, but um, got more attention over here. <laughs>
4: To the sky For the man Who paints the pictures He will hear you If you call And the man and have no
2: We next got Bubble Puppy and Hot Smoke and Sassafras, and and that's a song that I know from some covers by UK groups. That's right, yes. Um, It was a top 20 hit in America.
3: Apparently the title was inspired by um, Dialogue in the Beverly Hillbillies, which I do remember watching when I was a small child. Mm. Yes, that was a top 20 hit in America. Didn't do anything over here, which, of course, meant that British bands were thinking they could maybe cover it and have a hit, which was the uh, fairly standard response uh, at the time. So, uh, yeah, there's a nice version by the Mooch, especially, I think. But, uh, yeah, they, they fell out with their record company about uh, the fact they weren't uh, being uh, properly accounted to and they um, they decided to, to split from the label. And to do that, they had to change their name and um, move away from Texas to Los Angeles and they carried on recording under the name of Demian. Yeah, they, like I say, this was a hit in America, but um, that was basically
2: it. They made the album and then moved on. Is there a Demian track on the set as well?
3: There is, yes. Yeah, they, they moved it and they were managed by that
2: point by Nixon Nicholas
3: from Steppenwolf and they made an album for, I think it was the ABC label and we do have a track by them on, on here as well, but uh, we're not featuring it tonight.
2: A song or a style I wasn't expecting, and it's Muddy Waters with a Stones cover. Let's spend the night together, but it's got a real sunshine of your love feel. That's right. I'm sure people looking at the track listing maybe on the internet will say, Well, what on earth is Muddy Waters doing on
3: there? But uh, it's quite an interesting situation where the younger member of the chess family, Marshall Chess, took over and uh, took over the chess label and decided that Muddy Waters. If the sound was beefed up, it could appeal to psychedelic fans as well. And so you had the kind of slightly odd situation of Muddy Waters covering a (laughs) Rolling Stones song, when obviously the Stones were completely besotted with him in their early years. And this is him doing a kind of cream style version of the song and doing a good job of it as well. Apparently he wasn't happy.
2: Uh, I think he was cajoled into it really. But um, yeah, it works for me anyway. You said in the notes that some of the musicians at the time were quite fond of it. Yeah, um yes, they uh
3: Muddy Waters himself didn't like it apparently, but um it was certainly um popular with the heavier bands at the time. Obviously the Rolling Stones would probably have liked anything Muddy Waters did, but uh Hendrix um spoke well of it. Led Zeppelin claimed that uh, Black Dog had been inspired by the album and it did sell well. It was his first album to actually chart on Billboard, but uh It was one of those things where I think you had a new um, wave of of rock criticism at the time, late 60s, and those people were outraged, and I think um, a bit like Dylan, going from being acoustic to electric, I think a lot of blues purists were outraged at Muddy Waters was suddenly playing electric guitar.
5: God has been my-
2: now we've got the Stooges and I want to be your dog and and that was produced by John Cale wasn't it
3: yeah John Cale was involved in a lot of uh, interesting stuff he obviously uh, he did the, uh, the early modern lovers demos which are the best thing they did as well so i don't know how much he was um responsible for the sound but um the two stooges albums are obviously classics of that genre and uh, a bit like blue cheer that they predate a lot of things not just hard rock but also punk almost even grunge so yeah this was um summer of 69 wasn't well received at the time but obviously for most of us it's been a, a classic for as long as we can remember and i want to be your dog is to me probably the best song on that album
2: We have morgan welcome to the void and morgan was steve morgan who was a former folk singer that's
3: right yeah uh morgan's one of those bands that
2: took their name from the
3: the lead singer um so yeah morgan he had been a folkie initially and then he'd uh formed a psychedelic band called morgan's dream spectrum that got shortened just to morgan and he signed i think they had management problems that meant that the album didn't appear for almost a year after it was recorded. It came out December 69, but most of it dates back to late 68. Uh, I think it was remixed a little bit after that. But uh, yeah, it got good press coverage at the time. But I mean, if you listen to Welcome to the Void, it's probably not going to be a million, sir. But it's uh, a really powerful vocal and a great
2: song as well. And a good choice for a, an album sleeve?
3: Yeah, I mean, we take uh, Munch's um, Painting the Scream for granted these days, but I think at the time, I mean, we're talking over 50 years ago, it might even have been the first kind of pop cultural usage of that image. Um, And it does fit the kind of uh, slightly um, dark feel of the album. I think at the time, one of the trade journals said that Steve Morgan sings heavy music like a man possessed and it, it does have that element to it so um you yeah, know um full credit to him for picking out uh, the scream to uh, as the front cover
6: My gingerbread house And let your troubles fade away Let your mind get away from the fall I say welcome to the void Did you know that Peter Pan can fly? He just pats himself with dust I'll get you some if you're a very good boy And if in me you put your trust I say welcome to the void I say welcome to the void Jack be nimble, jack be quick Jack jumped over the candlestick. Out said Jack as he touched the lighted wick. My God, you know that fire
1: burns.
6: Old woman, she lives in a shoe. What a very funny thing. Really happy for today she received 40 red, white, and blue shoes straight Mm -hmm. Beauty did catch the beast And then much to her surprise A handsome prince did then appear And then the beast scratched out his eyes I say welcome to the Void, I say welcome to the Void. If you're good and if you watch your ways, one day to heaven you will go. You will lose everything you've ever known before. Who cares it's better than below. (laughs) I say welcome to the void. I say welcome to the void. flowers and a bright yellow sky Little squirrel gathering food Picnic's over, it's time to go home What's for dinner, Squirrels school Did you hear about Sam's Uncle Joe? Got lots of heads upon his wall Stands a hundred yards behind the cheetah's glass. Oh, he's the
1: bravest of them all.
6: Did you know that a good man died? Oh, how terrible they say. But you know that's just a part of life. It kind of happens every day. No!
2: We've got Frigid Pink's hit version of House of the Rising Sun and um, Frigid Pink, uh, a Detroit group. Yeah, Detroit group. I think they were initially a a kind of Motown covers band. Obviously, there must have been a lot of that going on
3: in Detroit at the time. Um, Bands playing locally and and covering everything that was coming out of um, the Motown hit factory. Yeah, apparently they recorded House of the Rising Sun in spare time uh, when they were in the studio and uh, somebody inside the studio latched onto it. The local radio station music director said you should put that out as a single and yeah it became a massive hit pretty much everywhere in the world top 10 in america and, and the uk and i think it topped the charts in germany i don't think they ever kind of repeated that they made four albums in total but house of the rising sun is even though it's a, a cliche as a song to cover you know they did uh, they did attack it and this is their their shining moment i think
2: we have Fuse and Sad Day and Fuse, a group who've got a strong, cheap, trick connection.
3: Yeah, it's, uh, this is, um, late 60s in Illinois. Um, and it's got, uh, Rick Nielsen in the days when he had hair <laughs> and, uh, Tom Peterson, um, as part of the lineup. Yeah, so they made a cut, um, a kind of vanity label single that their manager put out on his label and then they impressed, apparently, when they opened for Fleetwood Mac, um, that song signed by epic at that point they were still called the grim reapers mm-hmm. <laughs> the label said probably not a good idea uh and they called them fuse which is a fairly kind of nondescript name to be honest isn't it so yeah the album came out january 70 and and once they became famous um which trick they both kind of disowned that album but to me it's really strong and uh, this is um a good early uh rick nielsen song
2: Now we've got damnation of adam blessing and death of a virgin and this was a group that went through quite a few name changes didn't there yeah i think um they taken their name from a pulp novel
3: initially they called themselves damnation of adam blessing i guess it's a bit like Real underground taking their name from a pulp novel as well so the lead singer bill constable became adam blessing almost like a stage um a stage persona a bit like alice cooper if you like So, yeah, um, their debut album is a bit odd. It is a hard rock thing, but it also includes a cover of Last Train to Clarksville. But despite that kind of slight anomaly, it's a really strong album. Uh, Death of a Virgin sounds like, from the title, it's going to be this bludgeoning bludgeoning heavy metal thing, but it's actually quite a refined track, I think. Um, I like the fact as well that the, the record company, they sent them out on a nationwide tour and they were able to proclaim it they were touring the whole (laughs) damnation. Yeah, they did then become Damnation. Obviously, Damnation of Adam Blessing was a bit of a mouthful, and eventually the the record company wanted them to incorporate strings in their music, and they changed their name completely. They'd left the label, went with Grand Funk Railroad's manager, Terry Knight, and changed their name to Glory for a 1973 album, which doesn't really get that much attention these days. It didn't get much attention in those days either.
2: They had some connection with uh, Grand Funk Railroad latterly in their career, didn't they? That's right. Yeah, it's um, the Grand Funk manager Terry Knight, who of course was
3: would actually lead uh, lead his own band in the mid '60s in Detroit. Anyway, but he made a lot of money for Grand Funk and for himself. I think. I think that was the issue when Grand Funk eventually split with him. But uh, he couldn't do the similar with um, Damnation of Adam Blessing when they became Glory.
2: Now we've got ZZ Top and Neighbor Neighbor, and this was this must have been one of the very early releases of the group, certainly with a major label. That's right. This was actually from their first album. I think most of us will know the band they span off
3: from, uh, Moving Sidewalks, who are a bit of a classic Nuggets band. But uh, eventually they settled, settled Billy Gibbons, Dusty Hill, and Frank Beard, and they stayed together for. 51 years until Frank Beard died. Uh, so, yeah, this was from their first album. Um, obviously, Neighbour, Neighbour was quite heavily covered at the time. I think most people know Jimmy Hughes' version, but also there was a version in the UK by Peace Status Quo Band. But, yeah, they do a, a good job on it. And, um, yeah, it, the first album did well enough for them to continue anyway. And uh, it would be a few years before they really broke through the...
2: Old Sun and Twisted Flower, and this was a track that wasn't released at the time? No, that's right. You listen to it and you think, how on earth didn't that get, uh, that get
3: an issue at the time? But um, yeah, again, um, led by a guy mainly known as Billy Miller, but also called Billy Angel. They were based in Austin, Texas, and they were uh, Billy in particular was a big fan of the 13th Floor Elevators. So they recorded their own stuff in a studio between late 70 and early 71. Nothing came out. An acetate copy was pressed that many years later sold for $10,000. But by that time, Billy was um, part of Rocky Erickson's group. In fact, the whole of Cold Sun, the the lineup here, became Rocky Erickson's backing band, Bleeb Alien, better known as the Aliens as well. Yeah. Who backed uh, backed Rocky on his um, CBS album in 1980? So an interesting character, definitely. But this is good enough to, to stand up in its own right, irrespective of kind of his links to other people.
2: So Arthur Lee, Love Jumped Through My Window, and this was post-love and a, a real hard rock sound. Yeah, this is when um,
3: Arthur Lee was going through this kind of infatuation with Jimi Hendrix, and um, it's definitely got... I mean, when uh, when he was picked up, his latest record company, CBS, had just dropped him. Um, so he was without a contract when um, an A&M guy saw him play at the Whiskey A Go-Go, so he signed him up, got him to... Uh, Recorded an album which became Vindicator, came out in July 72. And yeah, there's plenty of stories and people who are on the album about the strange world of Arthur Lee at that time. He even had a sign up in his uh, living room saying, um dropped in Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, next to go Arthur Lee. So, a uh, strange character. I did meet Arthur Lee once, many years ago, just a year or two before he died. And um, he just played a fantastic gig. And like I say, half an hour later, he was out in the foyer meeting and greeting people or signing autographs anyway. And I did speak to him, but there was, you know, <laughs> the larger one, but there was nobody home. But I think he would have been like that 30 years earlier as well. I think um, the stories about him, even around this time, you know, are legendary. And uh, But he was still capable of making great music. And um, again, Vindicator is a really strong album. Um, showed that he um, he wasn't just you know the kind of guy who oversaw that kind of baroque majesty of, of uh, forever changes. He was capable of working in a much tougher musical vein as well. <laughs>
2: So another major scenester of the era and Todd Rundgren is it my name from the classic album a wizard a true star yeah one of the advantages about being asked to put this kind of compilation together is that you can indulge yourself a little bit and to
3: me a wizard a true star is one of the all-time great albums he covers everything on that album. I mean, I like all his other stuff as well, but uh, A Wizard of True Star is, is the peak of his career, I think. He does everything on it. He was capable of doing um, Hard Rock and Is It My Name, which is a very funny song, apart from anything else. Is, um, yeah, it just shows him that he can, he can master any genre. Un-PC lyrics as well. I'm afraid that was kind of um, a Todd speciality we don't want to hear S-L-U-T for instance even something like We Gotta Get You A Woman which is very kind of light it's still got that thing about women that they may be stupid but they sure are fun um, but uh, there we go um, it's a long while ago uh, I'm sure you wouldn't stand by some of those lyrics Um and i think he obviously had a sense of humor as well and uh you know there are some non-pc lyrics in this song but um, yeah i think it's basically um you know why don't you love me is it my name it's kind of like uh the song is built around that idea
2: Todd Rundgren producing Grand Funk for the uh, title track, We're an American Band. That's right. This is um, one of the reasons why
3: I did this chronologically is because I wanted to show the development of kind of American hard rock, how it comes out of that psychedelic era with bands like Vanilla, Farge and Iron, Butterfly and Blue Cheer. And then it kind of goes underground in the late 60s, early 70s, where it's not really selling. And then suddenly in 73, with bands like Aerosmith and Grand Funk, we're an American Band is a conscious attempt to write a hit single, and it is kind of like a glorified bar band. It's like the protagonist, some detective, or whatever, is in a bar. There'll be a band playing in the background. That's what this sounds like to me. And I think this is the point at which American hard rock enters the mainstream and then eventually becomes that kind of stadium rock thing two or three years down the line where the venues are bigger, uh, the sound is blander almost, but at this point, it's kind of um, still three-minute pop almost in a hard rock format. And this was a huge single for them, number one. you, Underground again coming
2: to the table and, and trying to cut out their kind of jam-based tendencies and, and concentrate on a three-minute pop song. So this completes the circle from on the underground to the mainstream as American rock evolved into the, the 70s?
3: Yeah, this does kind of complete the circle, really, um, from the underground to mainstream American, I mean, famously grand funk, Homer Simpson's favorite band. Um, so, so they did pass into um, pop culture history almost. We know when you're being name checked in a sitcom, then um, you know uh, you know that you were important at that point. And uh, I, I think a lot of what we've done, a lot of what is on the album in the late 60s, early 70s, it didn't sell at the time. But now bands have found a way to become commercially popular as well. So yeah, that that's the idea really that it is literally a journey the, the CD from, uh, from 67 to 73, I mean, mainly it's an excuse to put some good music together in a, in a format that works and, um, yeah, so it's, it's very uh, very satisfying to put something like that together. We were able to get most of what we wanted. There's always one or two exceptions in terms of licensing, but um, it was important to finish with, a, with an American band. Apart from anything else, it meant we could use that as a title. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Fantastic. Well, as always, David, a pleasure to speak with you, and uh, I highly recommend We're an American Band, a journey through the USA hard rock scene 1967 to 73. Right, yeah, thanks, Jason. Bye then.